Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Once again, I'm coming to you from New York, while my guest this week is in New Zealand. But before I get into talking about what this two-part interview is going to be about, I want to take a moment to, first of all, thank you listeners for tuning in to this podcast. It is a vision of mine to, in many ways, redefine what it means to be a citizen, particularly in light of what's going on around the world in West Africa, a place I also call home, and also here in the U.S., I feel very challenged with humanity in general, just really wanting to understand and solutionscape with my guests, with you listeners, about how we as a people reclaim our humanity and our inalienable right as citizens of the earth. You know, we have borders, we have land masses, we have capital structures, we have all these systems that somehow seem to be failing us. But what we do have is ourselves. So to my listeners in Nigeria, my listeners in Guinea, my listeners in Cote d'Ivoire, my listeners in the U.S., let's put our minds together and put our hearts into understanding and being the best of citizens that we can be. Let us continue to be unrelenting in our drive to have our voices heard, to have our needs met, to live without being in terror, to live knowing that we actually can guide ourselves on the road to our own freedoms and our own successes and our own well-being. A week from today will be the U.S. election. And I urge those of you who can to Really stake your claim on your citizenship of this country because it's all you can do right now. You know, we have a lot of dialogues around why vote if you don't have something specific to ask for or on the agenda. But at the base of all of this is a clear indication of what poor leadership does and has done to a people. And though it is feeling less and less so, The U.S. still does have systems in place that somehow offer what feels like a path to change, where people can say and air and really make their vote count. I'm more disheartened with what's going on in Africa because those systems are still wrecked with the vestiges of colonialism. And so I just hope that those who can will or have already place their votes, and be optimistic in your hearts and knowing that we shall really overcome, to take the words of our great leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So on to things that are a little bit more upbeat and uplifting. My guest this week is Karishma Singh Kelsey. She is from South Africa by way of India, and she's now based in New Zealand. So I look forward to this wonderful two-part interview that talks a lot about empowering women and really, again, what it means to be a citizen in another land and maybe offering a lens by which you too can determine where you are best suited and best fitted as a citizen. So let's get on with the interview. 
Hello, Glocal Citizens. This week, we're coming to you from New York again and clear across the world <laughs> in another time zone on a different day. It's Friday night here and it's Saturday afternoon there. I have Krishma Kelsey Singh, and she is the founder of Krishma Designs. She is a lecturer, she is a social entrepreneur, and her strong emphasis is on education and regenerative design. So one of the the ways that she describes herself is that she is very focused on slow ethical trade. And as an advocate for women and fashion, she just has so much to offer. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to just learn a little bit more about one, life and living and making, making a difference in the Southern Hemisphere, clearly across the world, but just also her different global perspective. So Karishma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I feel absolutely excited to be here. So thank you for having me. <laughs> nice. So let's, let's dive right in. So, so tell us more about where you're local and what is your craft? All right. So... My local, I guess my local right now is New Zealand, but my local is actually South Africa in Durban to be precise. And my craft, well, I'm actually quite multifaceted, but my, I guess if I had to pick one, it would be my intuitive ability to make connections with the natural world and the living of in the natural world between different organisms and then kind of reinvent those connections and, the, and, and those patterns into beautiful clothing for what we call all, be, all perfect canvases. So all women. I guess that would be my craft is, you know, honing in this, these beautiful lessons and, and ideas and stories of nature into incredible designs that are quite atypical. <laughs> so describe for us something that you've done that you've been very proud of that is one of those atypical designs. All right. So, well, as an African with Indian origin of five generations ago, in the mm -hmm. early 2000s, I kind of have always been inspired by Indian cloth and by textiles in general and the weaving of cloth. And I've also always been inspired by the goddess archetype. And so we're now in, generally in the Krishna design brand, the goddess archetype is quite integral to our philosophy. And so in saying that with the Indian origin, the, the concept of a woman wearing a sari was something that I absolutely loved. And I was constantly draping everything around me growing up and into sari. So my clothes are very, very fluid. I honestly feel like an artist that's sculpturing on a body. So one of these most incredible designs that we developed and put into production in the early 2000s was what we've called the Saratoga. And that is a fusion of a sari and all the draping arts of a toga. So the mm -hmm. idea behind the Saratoga is, is, is that it is proudly Indo-African. So it's the drape of Africans, the big turbans and the beautiful, you know, beaded fabrics and, and beadings embedded into the graceful look of a sari, making it a unique Afro-Indian Saratoga. 
it has the elegance of a sari and the and the sort of look of a sari, but the ease of a Western dress for us people who can't actually wear a sari and walk around all day. Sure, 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 sure. You know that I modeled one of your sorry, one of you, those designs. Yes. yes. That, is how, that is how kind of, so, so listeners, our craft, our paths crossed years ago and I never, I never knew Krishma. I, I just have another local citizen, Yana Fleming, who you've heard from, who is in, in this space as a social entrepreneur, a supporter and empower of women-owned businesses. So we were together for the Obama inauguration, the first Obama inauguration. Yes. So there was an All for Africa event. I was there. She said, oh, can you model this dress? And I loved that dress. It was beautiful. It was like this beautiful yellow golden and so many compliments. It was just gorgeous. And so I hear exactly what you're saying. And I can absolutely identify with that being just the painting on a canvas. It's the best way I can can describe it. The most amazing thing about that particular dress, it's really crazy because I did not make that connection and I wondered why you were so familiar. So that beautiful, (laughs) that particular dress, that cloth was already 65 years old when we turned it into a sari. So that's part of the beauty of the Karishma design philosophy is that generative. We take what is, most what is, and then we give it a different life. You know, everything is fair game for us. Every form of malleable textile is fair game. And that was awesome. a story that was donated by a girl who had been gifted it in her wedding ceremony by her grandmother in part of her wedding trousseau in South Africa. And she wore it once. And, you know, of course, you always need a new thing for a, for a new occasion, which is something I don't quite agree with. But she, you know, when I started the uh, collection campaign where I paid people for their saris instead of them, you know, kind of trashing it, that was one of the saris that came up. So that's wow. a story of the dress before it became a Saratoga. <laughs> wow. I love that. I love that. That is so awesome. Wow. So that's a story. So I love that as a as the epitome of what you do. So tell us more. We know that you are from South Africa of five generations of Indian descent. Tell us more about your your background going up and, and your inspiration just from the kind of the, the early days of, of Karishma. Okay. Well, I mean, I've, I was banned. Firstly, I grew up, I grew up on a farm in KwaZulu-Natal called Redcliffe. I grew up among a community where um, my grandfather was a landowner and most of the people in the community worked for him or for one of the other farmers in the community. And I guess I grew up with people and I grew up among different types of people, particularly black people in South Africa, because I grew up in the time of apartheid. Mm -hmm. Um, I was born in the 70s and I grew up in apartheid. But I never realized until I was a little bit older that there was a divide because I would go to school and my friends around me also went to school because I guess one of the biggest things about growing up was that my grandfather was a social entrepreneur and he was a philanthropist for the community. So in apartheid, people, black people, were not allowed to go to school and they were also not allowed to be literate. But my grandpa secretly educated them just to read and write and do math 
whilst they were working in the fields. And mm -hmm. I was constantly encouraged in my madness to be a teacher. Like he's like, oh, when you get home from school, and I always played school game and he'd get all my friends that I, all the, you know, the, their parents worked on the fields would be, you know, my friends as well. I grew up with them. And so when I got home from school, I would, you know, get everyone together and busily play school game. What I didn't realize was that me playing school was actually me helping them to actually learn to read and write. So this is something like growing up in South Africa, growing up on a farm where, where whilst, you know, my grandpa was the owner of the farm and we had, you know, a better house with electricity, whatever, we, I was constantly aware from the, about the age of six that not everybody went to school. I didn't quite understand why and that there was a divide. Mm -hmm. So people came to my house on Fridays to watch at 4.30 the, the only TV kids slot, which was Disney TV. And we got our lot, like all the kids in the community came after school to my house to watch that because nobody else had a TV. So I had running water, albeit from, you know, a tank, but everybody in the community went to the water tap to wash their clothes. I got home. So just to put this into complete perspective, you know, I'm driven by creating equal opportunity. This is my, my purpose. But fashion is really only my vehicle. And the point, you know, I went to school with a whole bunch of kids, but I was one of five people in my class of about 35 kids that wore shoes. I loved that they didn't wear shoes. So I would take my shoes off and lend it to them so that they could wear my socks and shoes and I could walk around barefoot because I thought it was just much better. So when I would come home and have to take my school dress off, which was like a white little pinafore kind of dress, that was fine. I took my school dress off and I gave it to my nanny, who was called Mayo, because that's the African name for grandma, mm -hmm. mother and grandma in, it's Coco in Zulu, but we called okay. her Mayo because that's what her children called her. So the grandkids, mm -hmm. everybody called her Mayo. I just called her Mayo as well. So I would give, take off my clothes and give it to Mayo. But all my friends who went to school with me went to the tap to wash their one dress, their one pair of socks, their one white petticoat for the next day of school. Okay. So whilst, you know, we grew up in, in an incredibly developed South Africa, the smell and the taste of separation and inequality was prevalent. However, in my household, because of my grandfather specifically, and then my parents, the separation was less. Okay, right. The separation was less because he educated the workers that were there. He sent many, many kids to school. As soon as they were of an age where they were allowed to go to school, he would pay for them to mm -hmm. go to school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, my, so the, the black kids in our house were a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> they were the special, special kids. <laughs> right. So, so, looking, so looking back at that, how you then were able to, because you grew up, you went to university somewhere, yeah. like how, how do you believe that that shaped you in relation to your peers? Because that was very unique, I would say, because I'm sure around you, the other farm and landholders were not treating yeah their workers the same way. They were not adding value to these communities. They were just, you know, moving along and doing what they did. So then as you 
went into adolescence and early adulthood, how then did that now translate into? Well, I knew. So I made things growing up with all my friends. I made all my toys. I made, I made wire cats. I lived with them. I went to have, you know, my, my sister and I would very happily go and have our tea in the, in the, you know, the helpers quarters. So we were very integrated. Our friends were, were all the people that worked around us. So we, so having that, having not had a sense of difference and then knowing that I could go to university, I knew, I always knew that, and my grandfather used to say this too. So he was quite an activist and worked quite a lot in the Gandhian um, societies and the NIC at the time. But of course, everything was very low key and undercover because, you know, being politically involved was not, was not the way. Sure. But the thing with my grandfather and the way we were brought up and that what influenced me was the clear understanding that as a human, our purpose on this earth is to create ultimate impact. So if you are able if, and that's what we, we were, it was drummed into us unconsciously just by, by the people we were with. We have the ability to go to school. We have the ability to learn. And our responsibility is then to pay it forward, to bring it back. So the analogy I often use is he would say, plant a mango tree. And our, our home is full of fruit trees in the moment. And the whole point was you plant a tree because it gives you food, it gives you shade, it nourishes the ground. So the type of tree is very critical for the environment. It needs mm-hmm. to nourish the ground. It needs to give back to the ground. And it takes like the, the excess fruit. So we were never allowed to remove everything off a tree. Because mm-hmm. we needed to make sure that, we, that there was enough for anybody who wanted it. So whilst my grandfather was a farmer, there was always enough to give. Mm-hmm. Always enough for reciprocity. There was always that you do, and then it comes back in full circle. So the sure. concept of ifaletu, which is the concept in Zulu of take care of tomorrow, take care of today to preserve the continuation of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it's part of that Ubuntu concept. And having grown up, understanding that I am who I am because I actually have parents who are, you know, who sent me to school means that I have to come back and share this wealth with everyone around me. And I did that continuously through high school and through university by paying homage to the Zulu tradition in my design, in my art and I continuously working. So one of my very first designs that were publicly acclaimed was in 1996. And it was for the a welcoming ceremony of Nelson Mandela. And we had to design an outfit that was in, that was in honor of our roots and, of, and, and to show our ifaletu, our heritage. And my outfit was a wire crinoline. So you know the African wire art? Mm-hmm. Those things that was made by my the people around me, the people that lived on our on our farm made me the wire crinoline. And we have the big beautiful beaded bodices that the Zulus wear and 
and you know the, the mass size wear, but I made the Zulu version with the beads and the what's it, the uh, pods of things from our farm and from farms around, and that was made by another set of women on the beachfront. And then I put this all together and I made this incredible paper mache headdress off the big five of Africa. And when Nelson Mandela stopped and looked at this design and he said to me, please, I need you to explain the majesty of this headdress. What does it mean? And I said, well, you see the buffalo horns, that's our power and our strength of the people. And the elephant tusk is because that's our wisdom. And you know, I explained each of those horns to him and he, he was just like, he actually bowed at me and said, thank you very much, thank you. So the idea for me and how it impacted me is I refuse to see the people who didn't go to school as different. I saw them as, oh my God, you guys do such amazing wire art. I wanna learn that. You do beadwork, I wanna learn that. So I felt that I went to school to learn how to run a business but these are the people who actually had all the other skills that we needed to co-create an enterprise. So I never looked, and I think mm -hmm. this is the difference mm -hmm. with the design, is that nobody's less than me because I went to university and have many degrees. It's simply that I had that opportunity, but they have a different opportunity. So my job was to bring right. it together and sort of enhance each of their abilities and take it to the world. And that's how it impacted me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to so, summarize. Right. <laughs> so, so fast forward, and now you're living still in, I guess, the Eastern part of the world. This is my why the where question. So how now did you come to be living, working, and playing in New Zealand? And ah, where exactly are you in? In New Zealand. So I am in Auckland. And how did I come here? Like everything that I've done in my life. So I left South Africa in the year 2000, in the euphoric time of Nelson Mandela, uh, not because mm -hmm. I didn't believe and I abandoned Africa, but because part of what I felt was my responsibility as somebody who was given more privilege than other black people in my community was to learn from the world and to connect us to the world because I was, I was so done of feeling as like a second-rate citizen, which is what we were led to believe, that I was like, you know what? I'm gonna take the world, I'm gonna take my knowledge to the world, and in doing so, I'm gonna bring my whole tribe with me. And so, and so I'm gonna bring my African with me to the rest of the world, for you guys to not see that we just, that little poor girl with Koshioka and a fly on her lip. So yeah. that, that image bothered me, my whole sure. And so why am I in New Zealand? That is quite accidental. But I left, I left South Africa and I started my travels to learn, to explore and to expand and to connect. And that took me to Germany mm -hmm. uh, where I did trend research. And, and that was actually the birthing place of Karishma Design. It was an account okay. class, yes. Okay. Um, but it wasn't where it manifested in Taiwan. Oh, okay. so, yeah. So I, I worked in, in Berlin for about half a year and then I moved in 2002 to um, Southeast Asia. And that's when I started Karishma Design in 2003. And again, focusing on women. And I was pushed into starting it. And so 
the work took me to different countries and to different explorations and to different groups of ethnicities and indigenous wisdoms, which is my absolute passion, indigenous wisdoms. And Mm -hmm. so the more I started to connect with different tribes of people, the first being the hill people in Sapa before before any of them in Vietnam. And so I started to connect with them and connect with their craft and starting to co-create with them, I realized how similar we all were and how similar to Africans we all were and how, how our indigenous wisdoms were interconnecting. And so I continued this journey of working with Vietnam, with Taiwan, with Thailand, with Sri Lanka. And in this process, all based on Taiwan, I got headhunted at the Hong Kong Fashion Week to head a design team in, in Montreal. And so fast forward to 2008, I was en route. I worked for the company for many years out, for many months out of Asia. And then I kind of thought, okay, they were, they were really keen on me working with them in Canada. So I had to leave South Africa because my African passport, uh, which is what I still hold very strongly, and close to me, meant that I had to go back to my homeland to, to go to Canada. And in that oh. application process, crazily enough, we had the bombings in London and they realized that 6,000 of those passports were fake, fraudulent, and that come out of South Africa and there was no visas. And so I was in South Africa, which was brilliant. And I was meant to be living in South Africa for the next couple of years, which is brilliant. In this time, my Canadian boyfriend asked me to marry him and um, him being a video game designer there was no work for him in South Africa and he said to me hey how about we move to Indonesia there's a job there and I was like perfect I'll move to Bali and I'll just expand my community sure (laughs) and so in Bali we completely were in the financial crisis uh, completely you know right in the financial crisis of 2008 which then took, you know, video game companies and technology companies looking to different parts of the world. And it was actually my husband slash partner who, who then asked us, he's like, you know, hey, where, where in the world would you guys like to live? Like, where, where in the world that's the middle of Canada and the middle of South Africa? And it was like, well, we don't want to go to Canada. Like, yeah, no. I mean, you know, the universe kicked me out of Canada and I'm not going to go to Canada. It's okay. too cold. Yeah. Really, you know, yeah. It's too cold and I don't really want to be there. I need to be somewhere where there's indigenous, somewhere where there's a wisdom that I want to learn that I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and he was like, well, hey, I've always wanted to go to New Zealand. How about we go to the Pacific, see the first sunrise of the world and the spiritual energy is so high there. Like, how about we get there? And so we were like, well, we actually need a place for our son to finish high school. So, yeah, let's let's go to New Zealand. And that's how we landed in New Zealand. We were never meant to live in New Zealand for nine years. We were wow. meant to live in New Zealand, you know, for a period of time. <laughs> and we wow. are now. And we are okay. here. Yeah. And we're here because it's a country that embraced us in a way that that I'm still very proudly African. Mm-hmm. But I'm also happy to say that, you know, the Pacific and the Maori people have welcomed mm-hmm. me into their land, that I can embrace their culture as well. So mm-hmm. I feel very proud to say that I have that, that welcome that brought, that made us stay in this country. It's also, yes, it's far away from the rest of the world, but there is a beauty here 
and there's a mm -hmm. mysticism here. And there's also, and there's just a simplicity, which is great. My heart is never far away from Africa. I am actually now, you know, going to be working on a project with South Africa and India and Maori. That's my, okay. that's my yeah. So I'll tell you about that in the next bits. But yeah, that's okay. All right. the one All right. New Zealand. This is it. It's just it, it's we kind of followed the flow. Yeah, and landed here. Okay, so so speaking of landing there and being there, this is where I ask my global speak question. So we <laughs> want to hear what you hear. So I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Okay, well, the word for me in Maori mm -hmm. is matoranga Maori. And it's a philosophy. So I guess the word that I would take from that philosophy would be mana. Or mana. Oh, yeah. And it comes from the concept of manakitanga. And mana is the giving. It's such a big word, actually. It's a philosophy. Yeah. It's, not, it's not just yeah. a word. Yeah. So say, say the whole thing again so I, I hear oh, it in. Me. The Maori philosophy is mm -hmm. called matuaranga Maori. Matura, maturanga. Ma, maturanga Maori. So Maturanga Maori. Maturanga Maori. And Maturanga Maori means the philosophy and the way of life that is Maori. It includes the wisdom, it includes the intelligence, it includes the divine balance. So it's all about this way of life, which is a way of life that is absolutely akin to Ubuntu. It is a way of life that we as humans are stewards of the land, but we live in connection and interconnection in the land. So it's all about the interbeingness of the land and how do you live as a human? So the philosophy of Matauranga Maori, which is made up by many other words, and one of my words is mana, to, to, is to give and to share and to be part of. Mm -hmm. um, so people would often say to you, oh, Karishma, you know, you are doing good mana. This is, this is really good mana, the work you're doing in West Auckland, educating these girls and giving them hope. This is great mana. This is great mm -hmm. aroha, which is aroha means to love. So, mm -hmm. so mana means to love, to care, to be part in the community. It's, it's, mm. Yeah, it's part of Manakitanga, which is the community to give. That would be my word. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's wonderful. So tell us, do you speak, how many languages do you speak? Uh, well, I speak three quite fluently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I speak, I guess, I have about five, six in my, in my vocabulary, in my heritage that I can kind of, you know, get by on. Yeah. Uh, but... Afrikaans, Hindi, English, of course, being my native tongue, um, mm -hmm. Zulu are the, my core from my homeland. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Mandarin from living in Southeast Asia. Oh, okay, right. And my and, and so that's, that's quite strong. And then I lived in Germany. And because of my, my ability to speak Afrikaans, um, oh, I was able right. to learn German. And my godparents... And people, family, really, really close to me were, were Germans. I kind of always had that German influence in my life. Okay. Um, and then, of course, now I'm in New Zealand and my latest exploration is Maori. 
Okay. Called, All right. Yeah, it's called Terio Maori. Terio Maori. Okay, so how how easy or difficult has it been? <laughs> well, I say that because there's for for particularly for indigenous languages and in countries where there's there's a dominant as English, finding tools to learn written language, those are a bit challenging. So so that's why I ask, have you found a tutor? Have you found different ways, apps, any of that? So it's basically so, you're on your own. So sadly, sadly and also positively. So up mm-hmm. until very recently, Maori was not taught at schools and it has been very, very tokenistic. So the mm-hmm. and I, I have to be very honest in saying that uh, mm-hmm. because it's something that that I don't appreciate being an outsider invited to share this country's resources and this country's energy. It was only until very recent years that they started to integrate the language into schools again and into the life of New Zealand. So it's still a predominantly, as you said, English. It's, it's an English-speaking country. In fact, children in school have never had to learn a second language. Right. That's how shocked I was when I came to New Zealand because right. I'd never heard of that in the six countries that I'd lived in prior. Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly difficult. I taught in a Maori institution called Fitereya. Mm-hmm. And yes, I could say my welcome, which is the pipiha in Maori, because I learned that because I was interested. So it was really about personal motivation. It was not accessible. However, in the nine years that we have been here, there are now, there's a drive. Now we have language week, a Maori language week. We have Maori taught in school right from junior school, albeit one class. We have the haka classes, which is the dance and the lifestyle. And so there is now an app. Oh, okay. Yes, Good. There, is, there is now an app, but that's new. And up until that app, it was just me writing words and trying to practice them and learn them because I cared. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, it's very rare to have an outsider care because the local, sadly, the local, what they, New Zealand is called Pākehā people, so the people of European or British descent mostly didn't care. Right. And a lot of them still don't care. And I can say that honestly because I'm in the education space, which yeah. is a little bit sad. Yeah. But there's a little bit of history with that as well. Obviously. Maoris feel more protective of their culture because they felt that their culture was taken advantage of and that it was exploited. Mm-hmm. So it's unlike the Africanism, me being the African coming from this, unlike my experiences in the rest of the world where I I was easily invited into the culture and then kind of started to learn the language and embrace the artists. It's taken me nine years. And I have now a few Maori friends and I'm friends and I've with a few artists and I've presented in a few Maori conferences and things, but it's taken me nine years mm-hmm. to have the courage and um, to be respected by a few local artists and designers to be included and for them to share their knowledge with me. Right. Which is awesome, actually. And that's that's a real testament to who you are and, and how you've approached your living all everywhere. So yeah. Yeah. But, it's, but it's not easy. This country has been my yeah. most difficult country to penetrate the wisdom that I wanted to learn mm-hmm. when I came into the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But the rest of the Pacific is a little bit different. 
So I have also been to Samoa and to the other countries. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like the it's a bit different because the majority, the majorities there are still the indigenous people. Yes. Yes. And so, so there's a respect and isn't this colonized view, you know, whereas yeah. New Zealand, it is, it, it sadly is this colonized way of life. I mean, in New Zealand, for instance, schools were mandatory for all children. There was never a segregation of Maori and Pākehā in the law. Mm-hmm. So the world knows a different story than when you come to the land and start to hear the stories from the Pacifica people who moved here in the mm-hmm. 70s. Okay. Born raids. It was no different, Florence, than how black people were, you know, made, were stood up and were raided and are raided today. It was no different. It was just a smaller, you know, a smaller number of people. But sure. that, that, those instances, that segregation, that systemic racism, yes. that, that pro-colonized view permeated this culture and permeates this culture to date. Mm-hmm. So, you know, them saying that all kids could go to school, whereas Maori kids would go to school and suddenly, but the teacher would not even say kiora to the Maori kids. The Maori kid had no way to understand this, this learning. The learning was constantly in a Western construct, in mm-hmm. a westernized way. And, mm-hmm. and it was almost, you know, it was exactly like South Africa, to be very honest with you. The yes. difference is that we, you know, we are a stronghold. We are still the majority of our population. So when I watch, uh, for me, I have complete empathy. I have, I yes. have complete empathy. I, I completely get it. Because, yeah, the story is horrible. The divide was built into their systems and people don't even see it. And they just feel like, well, you know, we're doing the good. We, we're doing it in the face of good. And I think that was it. You know, the intentions weren't bad. Well, right, especially because ignorance is bliss, right? So if you've you've never been confronted with with your privilege, then you you don't, and if you're never forced to, you don't have to. Wow, it's so it's so interesting. That's why I love doing this this program is to understand that the issues that we feel are very local are global. Yes, the same issues that we felt in the U.S. that I feel even between, you know, the tribalism that is even African, right? You know, what's going on in Nigeria now is the same iteration of privilege doing what privilege thinks it can do and and overpower and overtake. So, So it's very interesting to hear your perspective. Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with Karishma Singh Kelsey. Please do join us again next week for part two of our conversation where we dive deeper into how she actually went about establishing herself in business in multiple countries and persevering as a single mother in a world that doesn't also always treat women so kindly. So please do subscribe, share, comment. I always love comments and you can catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. So please do join us again. Bye for now. Bye for now.